You're listening to The Ripple Affect with your hosts, Cheech and Nippy, a podcast that explores how individual change has the capacity to affect the whole. From neuroscience to donuts, we're two sisters with a deep curiosity for ancient wisdom and modern knowledge, and we're obsessed with learning alongside you because we don't know. (laughs) Let's dive in. Hi, Issa here. This week on the pod, we are sharing some of our favorite Sofa Series interview segments of 2023, the birth year of our podcast. This episode is a compilation on change from three different and great minds. Well, five, if you include Kiara and I. Going into this new year and reflecting on this project, it's easy for me to feel into what it has done for me. It's allowed me to share my most authentic self work through serious fear of judgment and not enoughness, as well as surrender and trust in a whole new way. It has literally been my gardener, giving me nutrients, pruning, care, support, and gently watering change into my life. I have had many ahas and mm-hmm's throughout this podcast journey, and Kiara and I trust it has and will continue to do the same for you. Here's to learning deeper, growing together, and creating change from the inside out. Love you all. Happy New Year. Without further ado, a compilation. It's easier to act yourself into a new way of thinking than it is to think yourself into a new way of acting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? That if you mm-hmm. want something to be different, if you want something to change, do something different. It's a lot easier to change the thinking if you have a new action than it is to try and think your way into a new way of acting. This is a bi-directional relationship between your brain and your body, and that's really hard to sort of grasp, right? Mm-hmm. That it's easy to think about your brain determines what happens in your body, right? We tend to think of that as a unidirectional flow of information, right? right. From the brain to the movement or to the body. And the truth is, is that the body gives the brain feedback. So here's, here's my example. Um, have you ever done hot yoga? Yes. Okay. So do you know you never have to open your mouth when you breathe? Have you, (laughs) you can do an entire 90 minute hot yoga class, only breathing through your nose. That would be very challenging. It is. But here's the thing. When you open your mouth and start (gasps) sucking in air, right? Because you think that you are doing all these hard physical activities and your heart is is pounding, right? And you're thinking, no, I'm short of breath. I need to, (sighs) basically what you're doing when you start breathing through your mouth like that is you're allowing your sympathetic nervous system to take over. And your sympathetic nervous system says, oh my God, we need more air, right? And so the increased respiration, right? And that's sending feedback to your brain that you're not getting enough air. (laughs) And that's why breath work is so amazing. That's why breath work is so amazing. If you can force yourself to keep your mouth closed, right? Keep breathing through your nose, right? Smooth breathing is smooth yoga. At that point, you can keep your sympathetic nervous system. That's your fight or flight stuff, right? If you can keep that offline, right? Mm -hmm. You get sort of that benefit of exercise without the tension, without that sort of fear-based reaction. How do you do that? Well, you keep your mouth shut. That's an action. By forcing Mm -hmm. yourself to keep breathing through your nose, you tell your brain, yeah, no, we got this. We're fine. There's no panic. Gosh, we are such complex, amazing, interesting species. And that leads me to think about like consciousness, you know? Yeah. That, that is like, what is it? Because we can't agree. It's, you know, the the definition of it, you know, if you look it up is being awake, right? But like, yeah. but that's I, pretty weak. Yeah, it, it yeah. <laughs> so, from your perspective, what you know, what are your thoughts and feelings on on, on consciousness? 
That's that's a good question. So I don't know. I guess consciousness has to do with with I don't know. Because like I mean, okay, what about when you're sleeping? That's my first question. What about when you're sleeping? If if, if the definition is being awake, consciousness is being just being awake. Then what's happening when you're sleeping? Because you're reco- you, that's happening. Right. What is that like, then? And if if you're asleep and I walk into your room and I say, Isa, Isa, you'll wake up. So you can't be unconscious because you are still monitoring the environment. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what do I think consciousness is? Um, I know that consciousness is related to language and communication in some way. And, and I think that there are different kinds of consciousness. I think that my dog was clearly conscious. Um, like you wouldn't ever think that, oh, your dog is not conscious because that because he's sort of aware and responding to stimuli. Mm-hmm. So, but I don't think his consciousness was quite like mine. I think it was a little different. And I think that difference has to do with language. I think animals have varying kinds of consciousness. I guess maybe, I mean, if, if I had to say levels or steps, you know, because I don't think, and, and I think as humans, we're really arrogant and we think that we're at the top level and I think we're wrong. I don't think we are. I, I would agree with that statement. I think varying degrees of consciousness happens in animals and in, in humans within species. I think there's yeah. varying degrees of consciousness, but where, where do you make the distinction between perception and consciousness? How do you relate those two? I think that, you know, perception at its maybe most fundamental is sort of the ability to identify stimuli in your external environment, right? So perception becomes a tool to feed consciousness about what's happening in the exterior environment. Yes, I agree. And then you have that, uh, we also are amazing because we have the ability to pull our perspectives back and, and make up the story that we want to believe around what is happening. Right. And this is sort of that weird, that, so we were talking about sort of that bi-directional thing between your physiology and your brain and about, you know, using feedback from your body to your brain as well as from your brain to your body and, and respecting that. And I think that's the other thing too. Mike Gazaniga, um, he's at UCSB now, has done a, a lot of work around what he calls the interpreter. And the mm. interpreter is closely related to the language generative portion of your brain and that it makes up the stories. It runs the narrative of your day. It runs the narrative of your life. You know, that part of your brain that says, oh my God, oh shoot, I forgot to write down birdseed. I got to get birdseed. This is really important. What is that? What makes my brain do that? Right? Yeah. And the fact that if you can hear that, then you're not that. If you hear that voice saying that, someone's listening to that. So you're that thing behind that thing. Right. I am both things. How can that be? Right? The fact that we exist sort of in both of those formats. I actually really do have to get birdseed, by the way. (laughs) I'm going to write that down. Birdseed. I know, isn't that crazy? Um, So you have like this weird little narrative mechanism and Gazanaga calls it the interpreter. And it's generative, but it's also receptive. It's the part of your brain that makes up the stories and the reasoning and the rationale for why we do the things that we do. It helps drive that sort of understanding of our emotional state, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of those things that distinguishes our consciousness from that of what we call lower, and I, here's my air quotes again, lower animals. Um, but that being said, I do think, okay, and this is this is pretty far out there and I might get fired for admitting to this, but I think plants have some sort of consciousness as well. Oh, I, yeah. I, right? Like, I don't think yeah. that they're not receptive to perceptual changes, to changes in their environment. You know, they are, they clearly are. So there's they some are. form of consciousness there. You know, I, I don't think it ends with us. I think there are other forms of consciousness beyond ours as well. Spectrum. I would agree. And I think that our willingness to, to open that up and then to try and bridge that gap of science to spirituality, consciousness, I think is the perfect entry point. Do you distinguish between the brain and the mind? Yes. How do you draw that line? Mm, the brain is a structure. 
It is an organism built of cells, an organ technically, built of cells and cells that behave in reasonably predictive ways, predictable ways. The mind is is an emergent property of the brain. And I don't know, this is the $50 million question, right? What is the relationship between the brain and the mind? And how do we connect that? Because we know that we have cells and we have thresholds of excitation and we have action potentials and neurons talk to each other and they build relationships and that's LTP. How does that make a mind? No clue. So we- <laughs> There's a gap, there's a gap. A huge gap. There's this huge gap that we don't know how these patterns of cortical activity produce consciousness. We know that we're consciousness. We know that consciousness has different forms, but we still don't know how the brain produces the mind. I do know that the mind is a product of the brain. Do you know that? I believe that. I don't think that you can have a mind in the way that we understand a mind without a brain. I'm not saying that there isn't anything like a soul or some sort of eternal or infinite energy in there. Mm-hmm. That, that we think of as sort of the person that may be in there as well. But I do think that, that you can't have a mind the way that we understand minds without having a brain. Right. But you can have a brain without a mind. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, pow- that's a powerful point. Yeah. The mind really is so much of how we experience one another. Right. And that's, I mean, that mind is intimately related to our consciousness. And the distinction between consciousness and the mind? Well, that's a good question. I'm not sure that there is one. That's where I think that it might be more fuzzy, you know, Mm -hmm. that most things that happen in the mind are related to consciousness. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Fascinating, right? (laughs) Oh, you know me, questions with no answers. Those are my favorites. I like them. I like them. I like them. Those are the best kinds because then you can just keep the door open and just let whatever's going to come in keep coming in, right? It's like... Yeah. And it's you know, opportunities to learn and be curious, you know? So what is, what is something that you know or feel about change that you think could benefit others? It takes courage. And if you don't have any, you can borrow some. What are your suggestions for borrowing courage? Find someone who believes in you and what you're about to change. You know, even if you don't think you can do it, if you find someone who does, then you can do it. Mm. You just believe what they believe. But I think that change is a gift, you know, and it's so funny to me that most of us in, you know, whatever our spiritual journey looks like, most of us resist change, you know, and it's really hard to make ourselves embrace it, you know, and yet the reality is, is that everything changes every day, right? Nothing's ever the same. When I wake up, I'm a day older, you know, so something's different. I'm that much closer to death. (laughs) (laughs) I try not to think of it that way, but sometimes my brain helps me out. Um, (laughs) But the idea that anything is static is an illusion anyway. So why not tell yourself the truth, you know? And that even if it's fearful, then you find those things that you, that anchor you, you know, mm-hmm. that tell you that no matter what happens, you'll be okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that is, that, that, that is embracing change, right? I mean, there's. Yeah. yeah. Welcome it, you know? What are you most intrigued about when it comes to change in, in humans? I'm curious about why we psychologically resist change. So here's the thing. (laughs) Um, I see this as particularly problematic. So many of us are resistant to change. We don't want to do anything different. Even though when the thing that we're doing isn't necessarily working for us, we're still afraid of change. And we perceive change as negative. And we see, you know, that a lot of us see that whatever is sort of currently happening for us, even if it's bad, it's better than the unknown, right? And what I find really intriguing about that is that the human body 
is designed as a change system. Your sensory systems are change detectors. Their whole purpose is to detect change in the environment. For example, I mean, imagine the first time you started wearing your ring, right? And you noticed it and you could feel it and you were aware of it for a while. And then after probably a couple hours, you stopped noticing it, right? And every so often your attention would go back to it. Oh yeah, is it still there? Until eventually you stopped being aware of it almost entirely because literally the receptors in your skin begin to adapt to the presence of that object. It's like, well, this isn't anything new, so we can stop sending signals to the brain. Same thing is true with your eyes, right? Same thing is true with your nose. You know, when you go into like the monkey house at the zoo and you're like, it smells so bad. I'm probably going to die. And then after a little while, you're like, what smell? Mm -hmm. Because the olfactory receptors in your nose adapt to the presence of those molecules and it stops sending signals to your brain. It tells your brain there's nothing to worry about here. We're not, we're not even going to bother sending this on because it's irrelevant. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if your body is designed to detect change, why do we resist it so much? Why are we so entrenched in repeating the same behaviors and the same attitudes when our bodies literally thrive off of change? That's our whole purpose is to detect change in the environment. But we're also such, we're so efficient with our energy though. All of our systems are so efficient at running our energy. And sometimes do you think it's just an energetic thing that it would cost energy to change and our body does like maintain that energy, don't spend it? Maybe. And maybe that's it. Maybe you're right. Maybe it's just sort of evolutionary conservation of energy. I don't know, but I would like to know, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. like I don't know, because there's sort of the psychological thing that why do we fear the unknown so much, you know, evolution, but evolution. also in, in the misnomers in that there are people that are really good at change the people that do have those fears, but consistently work through them and out of their comfort zones, you know, um, that's interesting. What, what do you think it would mean to be good at change? For me, when I asked you that question, the first thing that kind of popped into my mind was people who are more accepting, I think, just of what is, as opposed to trying to change or control outcomes, seem to have more ease around change. I don't know if it's easier for them, but maybe they have more ease. Oh, I like how you said that. Let me begin at the foundation. You know, today we all understand that everything is energy. And if we look at any energy field, we understand that it's a cybernetic mechanism that is taking in its experience and then feeding back, self-correcting. Umberto Maturana is the father of the Chilean school of, of biology. He says that, that life, the definitive characteristic of life is it's a cognitive process a cognitive process, that every life form is self-creating. It's a field of energy taking in its experience and then uh, integrating that experience to assimilate its environment and maintain its homeostasis, that life is essentially a cognitive process. So what we're seeing here is everything is made of intelligence. That's what we're saying here, that every atom, every molecule, every cell, every organism is what it is because it's essentially a fabric of intelligence. And we do the same thing in each moment. We're taking in our experience and hopefully self-correcting to create a more harmonious or a more effective or more successful or more beautiful, more loving, more powerful world, whatever it is that brings us well-being. So the ancient wisdom of India reveals that everything is made of intelligence, that we live in a vast, fabric of creative intelligence. 
in the macrocosm, this, this intelligence is your cognizance, is your presence. And this is yourself because everything else in, the, in your world is changing. And the only thing that hasn't changed, the only thing that's real is this presence, this awareness. And what's mind-blowing about yourself is it's the same self, the same presence, the same awareness in all of us. In this cosmology, everything is a play of energy. And when that energy is connected to being, is connected to your divinity, it's called a sattvic state. And when we're in a sattvic state, we're peaceful, we're happy, we're connected. And this is our natural state, that every atom of your body is a well-to-being, that when that energy field is coherent, you feel well-being. When that energy field is coherent, you feel wonderful, filled with the wonder of this gift of life. When this energy is coherent, you return to your natural state, which is gratefulness. Mm. So what we're talking about here is not winning the lottery. We're talking about a life well-lived and the power that we all have to live in a constant state of communion with our inherent divinity. And it's, it's available to all of us. You needn't be a, a spiritual athlete, you know, competing in the spiritual Olympics. It's, it's meant for the humblest common, you know, just for the rest of us bozos riding on this uh, mystery bus called life. So it's, it's a lifelong thing, you know, it's a lifelong, we're, we're, we're cultivating, we're in a process of maturing, you know, it's just like learning to walk, you fall a thousand times and learn a tiny bit about equilibrium. And it's the same thing with sobriety or, or love or equanimity. We, we fail a thousand times and each time we learn a, a tiny bit of how to cultivate that well-being and that equanimity. Everything in your life is energy. You see, there are three states of energy. Energy is always moving in a cycle from the source to the field and back to the source on every level. And so sattva is a state where you're in communion with yourself. Walk the dog and you're in a sattvic state. For most of us, this is the most sacred part of our life. It's a time where suddenly everything's okay. We're in universal love. We have this relationship of universal. And we get out of the box. We're in nature. And our breath is one with the breath of nature. And our rhythms of our body are connecting with the etheric ocean of life. The, oh, God is not far away. Here is God right here. Here's this ocean of sacred life force. Nishikadada. Treat the life force as God. Any other concept you have of God is a fantasy. Here's this creative intelligence right mm -hmm. here. Here's life itself as God. We've been brainwashed so profoundly to think of some crusty old Hebrew in a cloud. You know? <laughs> and I don't mean, you know, uh, I, I grew up with Jewish roots, so. Uh, but it's not some crusty old malevolent who's created this hellish world. It's you and I have done it. That's like the best reason I've found. Even in the mundane, it's important how you do things, how you interact, how you choose to cook or how you choose to look at yourself in the mirror, how you choose to untangle something that's tangled. You know, I think that there there's a lot to be said with having relation and, and integrity with how you interact with life force. It's a really good reminder. 
you said something really interesting, Bruce, about there being three types of energy. You were talking about the sattvic energy, and then there were, I assume, these other ones. In each life breath on a molecular and cellular and total bodily level, your body's taken through a cycle of natural and cosmic attunement. So as you start to breathe in, there's a lengthening of the tissue. And on the molecular level and the cellular level and organic level, this is a level of soul communion where you commune with the life force. And that's called sattva guna. Guna usually translates quality, but it comes from roots, which means field. So the energy fields are in communion with the source. And this is the intelligence of the life force. Then as we... Uh, they continue to breathe, we move into what we would call inspiration, where every spiral of spiritus, a life breath, moves into attunement with the solar force, the nucleus of our energy field. In the macrocosm is the sun. So you move into rajas, which is an entrainment with the solar force here in this ocean of life, of nature. And that's inspiration. That's the fire of, of creativity, of personal power, the passion, the energy. Uh, the warmth, I'll say again, the passion of life. Uh, and then the field drops down into a lunar attunement. So in every moment, we're br brought through a cycle of natural and cosmic attunement with the breath of sattva, the source, the source of equilibrium, the life field, rajas, creative intelligence, personal power, uh, the passion, the fire, the warmth, the joy, the ecstasy of creativity, um, and then Tamas, the crystallization of that into wisdom and knowledge and form. And then again in the next cycle. So everything in nature is breathing. So we're saying that the key to life is cultivating a sattvic state. Because uh, for most of us, we're cranked up in this rajasic state. And with, in rajas, we reach a point where we're, we fall out of soul communion. And then we start looking outside of ourselves. Oh, if I only had more power, if I only had more money, if I only had more sex, if I only had more beauty, if I only, if I only had this diet, if I only had this rug, if I only had this car, if I only had this boyfriend, if I only had this dog. We look outside of ourselves, and that's rajas. And the problem with rajas is you've lost yourself. You're trying to find yourself in the world and all these external things, and even worse, at some point, it, it all crumbles into tamas, where you, you're really lost in darkness. So you have the power to cultivate a sattvic state because you can feel it when you're in soul communion. This is your natural state. Uh, you, the best barometer, are you feeling grateful? Are you feeling wonderful? This is your natural state. You are, ma you are made to feel grateful. You're made to feel wonderful. If you're not feeling grateful, if you're not feeling wonderful, you've blown it. <laughs> I love that. You just, you've blown it. That's it. It's it. We're done. That's We're done. It. We're done here. <laughs> Is there a way to, to talk about kind of the, the beginning building blocks of the body as a field of conscious energy and the ener energy healing in general? Well, I want to first mention how sacred your life is that we live in a fabric of omnipresence, of ultimate intelligence. And each of us is born, okay? And the moment you're born, you personify that moment in creation. So your life is really not just sacred, but significant. And your journey 
is a journey of how present you can. So each of us represents the, the, the pathos of life, the incredible uh, vulnerability and tenderness and beauty of sentience, of being alive. You know, all of the human drama is, is, is an offering to this, this incredible, incredible gift that it is to be alive. It's so so amazing to be in a body, to love, to cry, to hurt, to play, to grow, to mess up. It's all ecstatic. Okay. <laughs> Your dharma is to be you. Your place in creation is to find the safety to be the tender and delicate and loving person that you are. Do you realize the courage it takes to love in our defense and our uh, dysfunctional families? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so what I'm saying here is that your sentience is significant and you have a profound job in creation to be present in your experience. But there are moments that overwhelm us in the maturation process where we're unable to be present and the body, literally the tissue cringes and contracts, and we call that trauma. So life is filled with potential trauma, things that overwhelm our capacity to be present for them. And so the body shuts down. Now, the most beautiful thing about healing trauma is you never really have to re-experience a trauma. You only have to experience that it's safe to be present in your body. Mm. I wanted to just point out how our madness and our pain is a gift. Because if Thank I you. have any level of, of realization now, it's because of the pain I was in. Your pain is your ally. <laughs> you know, we all have the carrot of liberation or the carrot of enlightenment, but we also have the stick of our pain. So you want to just, in, I don't say enjoy your pain, but to respect your pain. And to understand that it's part of the maturation process, perhaps. Bruce, you have so much information on the body just from teaching for years and then also still being an active practitioner and working with the body. And when we boil it down to the physical body and on this topic of you know changing the world by changing ourselves and, and how change actually works in the body, what are your insights into that? Having had so many experiences helping people and guiding people through change in their body. Well, you know, the primary work I do is that rescuing the inner child, okay, where we're guided by higher intelligence to a time in their life where their ego structure was overwhelmed. And so we create a conscious and nourishing relationship with their adult and this vulnerable part of their being. And it's a form of soul retrieval because the soul is our presence. And for most of us, we have parts of our present invested in unconsciously dealing with the past or in suppressing the past in some way. So by reframing or renegotiating our subconscious, uh, we're able to take the most vulnerable part of our being and enter into conscious and nurturing relationship with this aspect of our psyche. And it's very accessible. And how do you see that actually changing people's physiology. So when we're threatened by something, okay, let's say you crash the car, you break up with your boyfriend, you lose a job, the mind, um, our, our natural state, okay, is peace. 
it's called uh, an etheric state. Ether is unobstructed motion. There's our natural state. We're one with everything. You're out there walking the dog, nothing wrong with the world. Phone rings, the bank calls, you're overdrawn. Suddenly, the mind, it goes from ether to air, which is the mind obsesses on this, looking for some way, fire, personal power, to create water, security, and let go earth. Okay? Do you mm-hmm. hear this cycle of creative intelligence moving from pure ether, freedom, to air, problem solving, fire, personal power, water, safety, earth, resolution? Okay? So the problem is when you lose that boyfriend or lose that job or whatever threatens the ego, we obsess on it for hours, days, weeks, months, years. And when we obsess, it's not just mental. We're sending a myriad of mental and emotional impulses into the nervous system, into fight or flight, so that we wake up in the night jerking from the impulses. We're having breakfast and our muscles are literally from the uh, sympathetic activation. So this we call body armoring. So these confused and contradictory mental and emotional impulses radiate out into the pelvis at the cordia equina, the horse's tail, where all the, so all this energy moves out of your spine into your pelvis for you give birth to your self-expression in the, in the world. And the caudate, that, that's really interesting. It's, it's, if people don't know, it's the very base of your spine and they call it the caudate equina because it looks like a horse's tail. It's where all the nerve endings come out and they, it, lo- it literally looks like a tail that you have, but it's encased into your spine and it, it is at the very base. And then that all radiates out into your mm-hmm. pelvis. So you can give birth to your self-expression through your thighs, walk your talk in the world. All illness is an issue in personal power. What does it take to be safe to express your needs, to be able to talk honestly? Um, Dr. Stone had developed these tremendous techniques, simple, easy, safe, for releasing the sympathetic activation for releasing this body armoring from the nervous system. That's what I do in every one of those sessions. That's why it's so profound. There's a shift into a sophic parasympathetic state because we release your chronic anxiety uh, with these simple, easy to learn uh, techniques. And it's amazing to me that there are these points on your body that you can hold that will do that because I think of, you know, the, the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system are part of our central nervous system, right? They, they're branches and they control different areas of our body that they get activated in different ways. And that's something that just naturally happens as, as an organism will do that. Our, our, our mind, the brain is very smart and the nervous system is very smart and it just, it will do what it needs to do. It's constantly, like you said, taking in that information from the outside world, adjusting our inside world to have homostasis constantly. And so to know that the physical form of the body has certain points on it that you can press and hold and manipulate that can affect those systems that are deep within our brain and spinal cord is something that I wasn't privy to previously to working with you. And I think that I don't know that very many people are and, and the value of that and the experience that we have the power to, through just loving presence and touch to shift somebody's entire 
system is a really powerful point. In the 1950s and 60s, there was a revolution in psychology by Dr. Eugene Genlin, who's the father of somatic psychology. He was uh, awarded, he was, he was like president of the, made president of the American Humanistic Psychology uh, Association. And they, he was lauded as the most important American philosopher of the 20th century. That what Freud did for pansexuality or the subconscious, he did for somatics. He showed the trauma was much older than the neocortex, the higher brain. That trauma was much older, that we as mammals had been dealing with trauma, trauma long before the limbic system and the emotional bonding developed. That trauma was held on a bodily, somatic level, the, the reptilian level, if you might. Okay, that we as mammals have this reptilian way of dealing with with mm. trauma, and so you can't address trauma in the neocortex. It doesn't lodge there. You can't address trauma in the emotions in the limbic system. It doesn't lodge there. It's much more primordial. It's on uh, the cellular somatic level that the body as a way of knowing and registering and learning on a precognitive, pre-emotional, reptilian level. And we call that level the felt sense. And trauma is, is we, we cringe, we shut down, we armor, we block our physical body. And all you need to do to release the trauma is physically experience that it's safe to breathe, safe to be alive, safe to be present. Dr. Genlin created a system of psychotherapy without psychotherapists called focusing, where you did exactly that. After you were triggered, you took some space and you cultivated being deeply, creating the safety to be deeply present for what uh, was triggered and your bodily response, what you were feeling in this felt sense. And this helped to process your trauma so that you wouldn't be triggered next time. Perhaps somatic psychology is at the basis of a revolution that's uh, going on to understand that the uh, the trauma is held on this level of the felt mm -hmm. sense, and sensation-based awareness is the key to uh, because again it goes back to you personify a moment in creation, mm -hmm. and your dharma is to be present in your experience. Mm -hmm. When your ego's resources for being present is overwhelmed, the ego shuts down. And that's what we call trauma. And we, we, we reenact our, our trauma unconsciously with each other. Mm -hmm. And the body stacks the trauma. It condenses experience so that when you're fighting with your husband, you're fighting with your father, uh, you're fighting with your teachers, you're uh, fighting with your birth trauma, that it's all there stacked in the condensed experience. You're this mammal with this nervous system trying to survive. So all these threats, all this activation of the sympathetic nervous system, the fight or flight, is stacked on there in some way. So realize when you make safety on this level, you create safety right down to the birth trauma. That's the other side of that, that the same spiral goes in two directions. Goals. So you, you, you know, we have tremendous freedom. We have tremendous freedom heal our lives you know and if you're in pain that that's something calling you to become a teacher whether you formally become a teacher or whether you just become uh, a wise sister is up to you at the same time regardless of any spiritual framework 
we have this longing for connection, right? This longing to understand ourselves and our lives and our connection to the all and our feeling of aliveness. And so that desire for rituals there, even if you don't belong to, to any kind of religious or spiritual community. And I have officiated so many ceremonies, be they a mere memorial service or a wedding where people say, please don't use God language. Please don't use spiritual language. And I'm like, okay, got it. And yet it's still a sacred experience for everyone involved because of the intention, because of the love, because of, of the ritual. Yeah. Of just this, let's, let's, we're all coming together. We humans, here we are in a circle and here we are lighting a candle and here we are having an intentional moment. And here we are all being present with our phones turned off and love in our hearts and a willingness to witness whatever's mm. happening here. I think a lot of ritual is tactile for people because it's a way of, you know, we, we sort of exist in our heads so much in our culture, in our society, right? And so to, to put it into, to, to light the candle, to have, to see that flame, um, to smell that incense, to have the campfire or the bath or a, a certain um, food we might eat or a certain drink we might eat with intention. It's a way of, you know, delighting our senses and reminding our senses, right? Of saying, oh, this is now this. Like when I light a candle for myself, it's, it's like a shortcut for me to connect, right? Because it's telling me, oh, okay, now, now it's a time to get a little quiet, you know? and listen a little bit. And then also there's, there's certain, you know, places of, of walking. I consider the act of, of walking. There's a, there's a, a specific hike in Los Angeles that I love. And I take long walks in Central Park in New York. And, and then obviously when I'm in the wilderness or anywhere, really just taking a long walk too is, is a ritual for me. And again, it's getting me into my body. It's getting me, uh, out of my head. What that is such a good point of like the simplicity of it can be anything. You naming yeah. it a ritual makes it so. You naming it a ceremony makes it so. And there's ancient ceremonies, and then there's the new ones that you're gonna come up with that are tailored to you that work for you. And it's I think it's the power of being able to participate with yourself with a certain, like you said, framework of mindset and really body set, right? To set your body up, your emotional body, your spiritual body, your etheric body, your energetic body, right? To try to bring them all together a little bit, <laughs> you know, I think is challenging in a modern, in a modern world. Well, I, I think, but I think that sort of integrated life is what we all want, you know, and we, and we live in a society that's taught us separateness, right? That's taught us we're separate from each other. We're separate from the earth. We're separate from the divine. And also that we're separate parts. Like, you know, on Sunday, I is when I do my holy thing for 30, 45 minutes and, you know, in this building. And then the rest of the time I go to work and then I have my family and then I have this as opposed to this integration and this interconnectedness, which I think we are all quite aware of and want to experience more in our day-to-day -day life. And also, you know, noticing that 
whether you call it a spiritual path or not, whether it's just a path of, of self understanding, self awareness, alignment, whatever you want to call it, that, that it, that it's involves some work and some understanding of who am I doing this for? Right. So if I'm presenting myself a certain way in the world that is not actually aligned with who I am, you know, that's an opportunity to reflect and, and shift and say, actually, huh, where am I my most authentic self? Mm. And how can I be me everywhere I go? Yeah. And what's in the way lovingly looking at what is in the way of me feeling like I can be. And also, but, but to, to recognize what precious information that is, right? What I mean by that is, you know, Hey, I just left that party and I just feel a little uncomfortable with, with how I was presenting myself or how I was conversing, or I feel I'm just noticing how insecure I was around that person and how much I resented that person. And, huh. And so being so curious about like, huh, I wonder what that's about. And that's such an opportunity to, to go within and to unpack that a little bit. And that that can be, oh my gosh, you can find treasure in there. Oh, yeah. And I think some people are, that, com- that comes easier to some people than to others, you know? And it's interesting, this wanting to cultivate that in yourself though, you know, and to realize, oh, this is important. And the more I can sit with this, the better I become at this naming of this sensation or this feeling or this emotion or this memory that comes up. I mean, they say knowledge is power and it's the darn truth. And it's, it's like self-knowledge is, is huge power. In secular terms, I, I call myself an inner awareness coach because I work with atheists too. You know, I, I come at it with no agenda. That's why I call myself a secular chaplain because chaplain is a, is a minister of presence And I think we're all called to be chaplains for one another. And if I can, you know, help people to uh, understand where their own guidance is leading them. I put a lot of trust in my own inner compass. And I, I really do my best to have a loving voice within myself. And I think that's one of the things I help people do is understand and trust their own inner compass and also to grow their capacity for self-love and compassion. Because I got to say, if the inside of our minds could be gentle places, the world would be a gentler place also. I agree with you. That brings me to something else I found in your Substack. actually. You use the word meloriism, M-E-L-I-O-R-I-S-M. And you wrote, is defined as the belief that the world can be made better by human effort. And I just, obviously that struck me because this is one of the founding beliefs that this podcast is going on. And so when you talked about helping people to have an inner voice that's, you know, kinder and more compassionate and and recognizing that that can ripple out, and have have this bigger effect. I thought that 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 word that I had never heard before was so fitting. That was also a word I had never heard, which is probably why I don't even know how to say it. But I'm going to guess meliorism. And when I I was struck by it, and I saw the definition, and I thought, oh yes, that is a belief I have. And I think to me the importance of that belief now 
is, you know, we're, we're coming out of a time where for centuries, I guess, so many people made that their God's responsibility, right? That the world can be made better if God allows it. We're waiting for God to do something. We're praying for God to do something. You know, there's this giving up of power in a way of our own personal power and our collective power and our loving power as humans, right? And so this idea of human effort, you know, I love that. David Orr has a great quote. I love it so much. It's, um, he says, hope is a verb with its shirt sleeves rolled up, right? So that meliorism speaks to that, that as we are actively hoping for a better world, we got our shirt sleeves rolled up and we are helping to make a better world. God, that's such a great concept for this podcast too, because Issa and I talk a lot about this and I'm curious of your thoughts on it, of this idea of magical thinking and spiritual bypassing. It's such an important topic, this idea of spiritual bypassing. And I think one of the, one of the teachings of the divine feminine for me, which as you know, is very, very important in my life and, and certainly on the topic of change is this permission to hold contradiction, right? And so, yes, we are co-creators. Yes, we are agents of manifestation in this world. Absolutely, we have powers that we do not even understand. They are so mighty. Absolutely. And we are human. And we have subconscious beliefs and we have emotional patterns and we have resentments and we have traumas and we have heartbreaks and we have dysfunctions and challenges and all the all of it and we can't pretend that some of that doesn't exist right in my spiritual seeking i remember sitting in seminars you know starting 20 years ago when i was really getting conscious about being a student of this and i remember being in the presence of some spiritual teachers where i they were to me radiating rage just radiating it but they had a smile on their face Welcome to this mama. And I was like, oh man. For those of you who can't see, Liz just put on this crazy cult leader face. It's like, I am at one with everybody. And it's like, oh, no, you're not. You got something to deal with. So, yeah. so yes, it's important as we recognize intention. And I think, you know, when we are sitting around in our rituals, and yeah, if some people use sacred items or sacred objects that they have declared sacred, like a crystal or whatever it is, and and you have an intention and you're and you're doing some daydreams about something you you really want in your life or a desire or something. Well, then the next step is is to notice what's coming up, right, in resistance or a fear or the the belief that can't happen or I'm unworthy of that or blah blah blah. Like, keep going. Don't just let it stop with the daydream. Keep going. And how can I, how can I let that go? Ooh, that's something I need to heal in myself or, you know, that's what I mean by information from within. Keep excavating, right? Don't stop at the uncomfortable because there's this edge you can walk up with yourself of like, I want to feel this way and I'm going to stay positive and I'm going to hold this. But then if there's a denial happening within you around what is it that you actually feel though, when I started to pay attention that the holistic way that I felt was both hopeful and angry. <laughs> yeah. But it's like the truth shall set you free, right? You know, 
It's like, you gotta, you gotta tell the truth. You got to be like, even though I really want to be feeling good right now, I actually have a lot of sadness in me right now. Okay. Okay. I'm going to give that attention. I'm going to honor that. The honoring of it, that it doesn't necessarily have to overtake or even indulge it, but at least witnessing it is that honest self-assessment and usually addresses that inner child or inner voice, right? The inner critic that does probably need some attention of some kind, if not compassionate attention, but the ignoring of it is not helpful in my experience. Yeah. And it's interesting thinking about change too, right? Because I think a lot of times when we ignore these these things, um, instead of giving, honoring them or whatever, is that they can keep us stuck in our lives. Yes. You know? And so if, if you think about emotion as, as movement, right. And allowing them to move through. So it's not about keeping that emotion stuck. It's like letting it move out through and out. One of my blogs I wrote was called the art of listening because I, I feel like my listening practice started in acting class because mainly it's that being in the moment that, you know, you got to be in the moment, you got to be in the moment. That is just a refrain as an actor and, and listening to the audience, right? You know, really that's basically what I do when I have a session with anyone is deep listening. That's really what I do. And that seems so simple, but it's not because it really is a focused attention. And there's something that happens when... The opportunity of being deeply listened to is ultimately an opportunity to listen to yourself in a way that can be profound and surprising, right? So I'm also holding space for people, to that other person, to listen to themselves. And when you're listening without an agenda, without an urge to interrupt, and to notice also what's my stuff and what's not my stuff, right? And, and to have that place where I'm not uncomfortable when emotions come up, you know, so that that's safe and, and offering a place of non-judgment. For me, in, in, as I am continuing to practice the art of listening, I am constantly, you know, learning how to continue to cultivate this inner peace and this quiet space within so that when I am holding space for someone else, I can truly, truly give them my undivided attention. Yeah, and I've experienced that to be true of you, meaning when you come forward with me and I can feel it, the non-judgment that allows me to give myself permission to not judge me. And that is safety. And safety is such a foundation of doing spiritual work, quote unquote. I believe that safety is a keystone to change of an individual, of a human, and possibly of a society and, and bigger. I'm not sure. Well, because there's trust there, right? And also when we talk about safety, like feeling safe inside of myself, I want to feel safe in here, right? Part of my role here too is to to be a loving witness for someone, right? So as in a place of non-judgment, if I'm like, I'm also viewing you with the eyes of a loving witness, therefore giving you an opportunity to be a loving witness for yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think about the power of, of radical self-acceptance, which 
changes us when we are able to really radically self accept ourselves the way we are exactly the way we are and and even accept where we are in our lives right i can't change until i accept where i am in this moment right career or personal life or anything is like i'm accepting that i'm deeply unhappy in this marriage and i'm accepting that that is my truth and now i can change something. So there's a lot of power in, in recognizing all that's going on inside and a power in acceptance, obviously, but changing one's perception of self. I think that's one of the the keys to change. That's so important that people don't tell you about is, oh, how you think about yourself is going to change. And you have to have a willingness to have that happen too, right? There's a good metaphor I have for that. Sometimes there's butterflies out in the world who still think of themselves as caterpillars. That's the human metaphor, right? So even though they've changed, even though they're a completely different being than they were before they went into that cocoon, they're still like, oh, look at me, I'm a caterpillar. And it's like the world sees you as a a butterfly, but you're still naming yourself and self-identifying as a caterpillar. And we are in the natural world, right? So I can look out the window right now and see trees that are a little more yellow than they were yesterday, right? And so it's like, yeah, I got I got yellow leaves in me and green leaves and everything. Like that we are always changing and that that is the natural way of things. Mm-hmm. And so what a relief, right? Oh, I'm just participating in the natural way of things by being my ever-changing self, right? But this willingness to let not only me surprise me, but letting life surprise me, you know? Sometimes we go into change and to periods of change where we don't have all the information yet. Befriending the unknown, right? Feeling safe in the unknown. And you wrote about this, you know, it being the less familiar. As we were talking about the power of naming, what happens when you can't name something? How, how can you expect yourself to feel safe around something that you can't name? There's so many names for the, the divine. And one name I like is... Um, great mystery. So if I was in a session with someone and then was talking about this unknown, this unknown, this unknown. Now, if I were to say, well, what if we called it the great mystery? And if that was part of the universe or the divine or the holy, and that you're part of the great mystery and you yourself are a great mystery, that could maybe feel a little, I don't know, maybe a little safer, a little more loving than the unknown. Absolutely. And the reality is we don't know. We don't know what's going to fucking happen. We just don't. I don't even know how my arms work. Like I don't understand. <laughs> now, right. But it's like, <laughs> but if the reframe is instead of this unknown where I'm flailing, I'm flailing, I'm not, you know, or the reframe could be, I'm held by mystery, actually being held by it. I'm held up by it. I can lean into it and I don't have to understand it in my little, my little noggin. It's, it's okay. It's safe to not understand in a logical way. It's safe, safe, even if I'm not grasping totally what's going on right now in my life. Yeah. To reassure yourself that you are safe when things are not fully in your control. Yeah. Because that is one of the most compounding 
falsities is that we have control. Absolutely. And that's the power of the, of the serenity prayer, right? Help me to understand what I can control, what I can't, and the wisdom to know the difference, right? So yeah, that's a beautiful question too, and a beautiful prayer. Okay. I, I think we did it. Listen, I don't know what we did, but we did it. <laughs> Look, unattainable ideals are overrated. We're way more connected and deserving than society's false sense of separation dictates us to be. You're not just one person. You're enough. Your effort is enough and change is possible. Question the standard that says otherwise, because what if almost is good enough? Just by tuning in, you're a part of our clan. Not in a culty way, though. <laughs> we don't know how far this ripple can go, but we're going to keep showing up. And we'll never get to perfection, but we're all going to be okay if we let the process be the solution and we see the value in the attempt. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Ripple Affect. We're looking forward to exploring a different facet of change with you next Tuesday. Same time, same place, next week. For show notes and additional resources, check out our website at rippleeffectpod.com. That's affect with an A. Kiara has worked diligently to make our website interactive. Please visit it so it wasn't all for nothing. <laughs> In all seriousness, though, there's a ton of resources there. DM us directly at Ripple Effect Pod on Instagram and let us know what you liked about our show or any of your own ideas. We're really excited to hear from you. We value your feedback because it helps us make the pod better and it's our way of including you in our process. Okay, so ratings aren't the point of why we do this. We really want to make a change in the world. But in the matrix, there are algorithms. So yeah, every single review we get helps the ripple go farther. To help us out, please take two seconds, find the ratings and review section on whatever platform you're listening from, click five stars, wink, wink, and leave a review. We know you're busy. So just saying hello or literally hi as the review helps us hack the matrix. We sincerely appreciate it. If you want to become officially initiated into our clan, again, not in a culty way, hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcast. And as always, we're in it with you. Keep questioning. Stay curious. You got this, clan. A special thank you, love, and credit to the magnificent Mia Casasanta for this beautiful music you're listening to right now. <laughs>